All right, we are in the book of Acts. Brother Jim read our text this morning out of Acts chapter 26. Very familiar passage to everybody uh, that is a uh, just a s- slightly aware of the Word of God. I'm sure there's part of these. Uh, get ready here. Nope, didn't do it. Good. There are. Uh, this is a passage that you've heard of before, and we are preaching through the book of Acts. So here we are in chapters 25 and 26, and we're going to endeavor to look at this today, and the Lord help us here. And uh, if you found your place, could you just say Amen. All right, good. You know how to do that. That's good. So, okay, if you remember last week, last week Paul had stood before Felix, his wife Drusilla, and he had given them the gospel. And if you remember, the Bible says that Felix, remember this, this word trembling, he, he, was, he was trembling after the preaching of Paul. He was under great conviction, but he refused at that point to surrender to God. And this trembling that was going on in Felix's life was what the Bible calls the conviction of the Spirit of God. This is what he does. He draws us. He convicts the world of sin and righteousness and judgment to come. And it was exactly what Paul was preaching here to Felix. And he said here, look at in, in Acts 24 and verse 25, the Apostle Paul said, As he reasoned of righteousness, of temperance, and of judgment to come, Felix trembled. He trembled. The Holy Spirit of God put his finger on Felix's heart and condemned him. He condemned him of his unrighteousness. He condemned him of his lack of temperance. He condemned him of the, the point that there is coming a day that Felix is going to stand before the God of heaven and give an account of his life. And you know what I know here? Obviously, Felix knew he was guilty. Why? Because he acted like he was guilty. <laughs> yeah. He knew he was guilty. He was under the condemnation of God. He was under the spirit conviction from God. But his famous words, his famous words were, Go thy way this time. When I have a more convenient season, Paul, I'll call for thee. But we saw from our text last week that season never came. For two years, he communed with Paul. For two years, he tried to get a bribe out of Paul to get him out of prison. And uh, I think Paul was part Dutch. Because he was not going to let one dime go, go, go. Anybody Dutch? Anybody just a tight Dutchman that doesn't like money to go? Okay, I think maybe he was. But anyway, uh, he sat there for two years. We have no record of Felix ever coming to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And I want to remind us this morning, before we even get into the message this morning, That convenient season never came for Felix. And listen, it might not come for thee as well. You can put off God and you can keep putting Him off and putting Him off. But I'm telling you, there's coming a day when you will have no other time to put God off again. In 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 2, the Apostle Paul spoke about this. And he said, Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now... Now is the day of salvation. If you remember, God told Noah when, when he wanted Noah to build the ark, he was going to get, get, wipe out the, the, the creation that he had done here. And God said, my spirit will not always strive with man. Listen to me this morning. Grace eventually runs out. 
conviction will come to a close. The drawing of God will go away. And if you reject God long enough, you'll get exactly what you want, friend. I like what one man said. I wouldn't endorse about anything else he said, but I like what he said. God drags nobody kicking and screaming into heaven. You have a free will. And you can say yes, and you can say no. And for two years, Felix never came to the place of repentance and faith. And what we see here in our text now is like we've seen in our own government, a little bit of a changing of the guard. Felix is out, and there's a new man in, uh, Porcius Festus, or Porcius Festus, however you want to call it, however you want to pronounce it. It's a couple different pronunciations there. But we know him simply as the Bible calls him Festus. Festus has now replaced Felix He has been replaced. The Roman government uh, took Felix out, put Festus in here. And he's only been in office now, when we get to our text here, he's only been in office for three days. He goes up to Jerusalem. When he gets up to Jerusalem, the Jews here waste no time at all. They They want Paul dead. They want Paul brought back to trial again. They thought, well, we couldn't get through to Felix. Maybe we'll try getting through to Festus, make a few inroads here with him. But Paul, or I'm sorry, Festus is not going to allow Paul to be brought from Caesarea up to Jerusalem. He says, no, I'm not bringing him up. But you can go ahead and come down to Caesarea, or I'm sorry, north to Caesarea. If you go to Jerusalem, uh, the Jews always called Jerusalem up because of the elevation. And so they'll always say, we're going up to Jerusalem. And they love that. But it, so you get a little confused here. They went down to Caesarea, but they didn't go north or south to Caesarea like we think. They went north. They went elevation down and went north to Caesarea. And he says, you can come on over to Caesarea. You can come up here and give your case. But Paul is not coming up to Jerusalem. So Festus stays there for about 10 days. He returns to Caesarea. And all this company of Jews uh, went down to Caesarea as well. And they're going to come there and they're going to put their case before Festus. I want to just clear a spot real quick here. And I want to make a statement. And um, we see this everywhere in the Word of God. We see this in our own life as a believer. We see it in the world. We see it in politics. We see it in church things. We see it everywhere. And the statement I want to say is this. Evil never quits. Evil never quits. Revelation chapter 12. We have a little bit of a curtain drawn back here. And the Bible says, And that great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, and which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. I'm telling you, Satan is right now in front of the mercy seat of I'm sorry, in front of the throne of God. He is, he is night and day before God, but there's coming a day when he won't be there anymore. And look what it says here. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is salvation come, and strength, and the kingdom of our God, and the power of his Christ. Listen to this. 
For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. I'm telling you here this morning, if you're a child of God this morning, Satan is before the throne of God right now accusing you to your heavenly father. And can I tell you this? What Satan accuses of, I, I imagine, I imagine he's right. <laughs> no. God. That's your child, right? Yes. You know what he just said, right? Yes. You know what they just did, right? Yes, I know. And they're yours? Yes. Yes. Accusing, the Bible says, day and night. I, I would surmise that Satan would be would not have to dig up anything false to accuse us with. So he never stops accusing us. There is good news though. We do have a lawyer. We do have our advocate, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us and pleading our case. Hallelujah. Yeah. But Satan never quits, does he? Remember when Jesus was in the wilderness? He'd just been baptized of John. He was filled with the Holy Ghost. He was taken up out of the water. He went into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. And, and he fasted there for 40 days and 40 nights. And the Bible says when he was unhungered, Satan came to him. That, oh, Satan loves it when you're weak. Yeah. When you're weak of mind, when you're weak of body, when you're ill, when you're sick. We need to take care of our... That's one reason you need to take care of the temple of God. Yeah, you make yourself a more of an open target for Satan. But he came to Jesus when he was in hunger, and he tempted him three times. He tempted him three times. Jesus said, it is written, it is written, it is written. And then in verse 13 of Luke chapter 4, the Bible says this, Satan departed from him, and some of you know the rest of this, for a season. What does that mean? He was coming back. When did he come back? I, I believe he was right there in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus prayed. Yeah. He left for a season. You see, evil never quits. Satan never quits. And once again, the high priest and the leaders of Israel want Paul put on trial and executed. Can I just interject something here this morning? You'll never get along with the world if you're getting along with Jesus. The world will never get along with you or if you are getting along with God. There's very little we begin to have in common. Oh, we love the world. We want to see the world come to Jesus Christ. We want to see them saved. But if we live godly in Christ Jesus, I'm sorry, it's going to be a little bit harder to get along with. Yeah. So here are the high priests. Here's the Jews. They want Paul put on trial. They want Paul executed. They went down to Caesarea. They brought up charges again that they couldn't prove. And Paul again Defended himself. Would you find your place in chapter 25? Look at verse 8. Chapter 25 and verse 8. Actually, look at verse 7. I do this all the time. I should get better at this. Verse 7. When he was come, the Jews which came down from Jerusalem stood round about and laid many grievous complaints against Paul, which they could not prove. And while he answered for himself... He said this, neither against the law of the Jews, neither against the temple, nor yet against Caesar have I offended anything at all. Paul says, I'm innocent. I've done nothing. 
So now Festus is going to say, well, hey, we'll tell you what. Would you go ahead and go up to Jerusalem and go up on trial? Go up to trial? Look at verse 9. But Festus willing to do the Jews a pleasure. He'd just come into office. He's got a new position. Um, listen, they want peace. They want tranquility in the place. He wants to keep his job. And he says to, here in verse 9, Will thou go up to Jerusalem and there be judged of those things before me? And Paul says, no, I will not. You know what he says finally? Verse 10. Then said Paul, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat where I ought to be judged. To the Jews have I done no wrong and thou very well knowest. Look at verse 11. For if I be an offender, I have committed anything worthy of death. I refuse not to die. If, but if there be none of these things, whereof they accuse me, no man may deliver me unto them. I appeal unto Caesar. You know, it was a Roman citizen's right to ask for a direct judgment by the emperor of Rome. It's one of the oldest rights that a Roman citizen had. So says Pliny the Younger. He, he appealed unto Caesar. He wasn't getting where he wanted to be. And he says, fine, I'm going to the Supreme Court. Said, okay. Festus says, Caesar, you want to go to? He had a little meeting there with his people. Try to get a little, maybe a better grasp of this. And he comes out and says, all right. You want to go to Caesar? To Caesar you will go. Look at verse 12. Then Festus, when he had conferred with the council, answered, hast thou appealed unto Caesar? Unto Caesar thou shalt go. You know, this is a very interesting strategy on Paul's part. He knows if he goes to Jerusalem, he's dead. But he also knows that while he was at the fortress Antonia there, that the Lord Jesus came and stood to him, stood with him by night and said, Paul, you've, you've bore witness of me in Jerusalem, and you're going to bear witness of me also in Rome. Paul knew he was going to Rome. You know what he got? He got a free ticket. <laughs> Paid for by the Roman government. He got a free... Listen, just obey God. Stay in the will of God. God will take care of all of the other little things that you're worried about. Yeah. And so no doubt, I think also that Festus is a little bit relieved as well. It's a pretty heavy case he's got to deal with. And so Paul is headed to Rome. And evil never retreats. But you notice the third thing I notice in our text here is that the gospel can't lose. The gospel cannot lose. Paul is waiting to be sent to Rome, and King Agrippa II now is going to show up at Caesarea. I hope you don't mind history. I, I kind of like history. I'm not super good at it, but I, I like learning whatever I can of history. Yeah. Herod was from an Edomite family. Who were the Edomites? Well, Esau. Well, back somewhere in the 2nd century B.C., the 200s B.C., this Edomite family converted to Judaism. They became Jews. They became Hebrews. They, and and after, uh, uh, after Herod's death, all right, he's an Edomite. Herod is an Edomite. After Herod the Great's death, this is the Herod that, that, that had all the babies killed about two years of age or younger because he was so paranoid about somebody taking his throne. He heard about the Magi came and told him of the Messiah. It's this Herod, he's an Edomite, he's a converted Jew. And after his death, the family believed that he was the Messiah. And they started the sect of the Herodians. So King Agrippa is a Herodian king. His father, King Agrippa I, 
himself a Herodian king. But this King Agrippa here as well as his father, a Herodian king, a descendant of Herod the first. And he is uh, the, the son of, as I said, of Agrippa the one. Let, let me show you it this way. Agrippa the first, you'll know him because he be, we looked at this last week. Agrippa the first beheaded John the Baptist. He was that Agrippa. Agrippa number two here in our text today, several years later, he's the one who's going to uh, execute James. He's the one who's going to put Peter in prison. He was the last of the Herods of this Herodian dynasty. He was the last one. And this Agrippa here that has come to Caesar is a typical, vile, Romanized leader. All of the, all of these, uh, of the family of, Her- of the Herodians were sent to Rome for their education. And you know the saying, when in Rome, do as the Romans, and they certainly did. They come out of there just as vile as the rest of society. We, you want to know a little bit of a history about Rome? Well, it was Nero himself who had married at least two men in his life. And it was Nero who always wanted to be the bride. Now, these are vile. The stuff that went on in public in the Roman Empire. The stuff that went on in private in the Roman Empire. Agrippa II here in our text has been educated in Rome. He has become the typical, vile, Romanized leader. He is the brother of Drusilla and Bernice. We looked at that last week. And uh, they adapted quite well into this Roman culture. He is married, this Agrippa right here, is married to a lady named Bernice. Or Bernice. It's a sister. Half-sister, it's his father's daughter. And do you know, even within the Roman Empire, though anything was allowed to go, almost anything was allowable, this was still one thing that wasn't allowed to marry your sibling. And so there's a lot of talk about this. There's a lot of undercurrent. They tried to keep it under wraps for some time. Actually, Bernice had actually been married, I think, to about three different men in the interim of her life and would eventually at different times go back to Agrippa. It was just such a sordid mess. actually turn on the news here and not find much different, can you? <laughs> yeah. He was the first one to have a sister wife. Isn't that a show or something I've heard about? <laughs> yeah. So at this time in our text, Festus has taken Felix's place. Agrippa II is the king of Judea. He's a converted Jew, very Roman though. And Nero is the emperor in Rome. So Agrippa shows up. It's this Agrippa. He shows up. Festus fills him in on what's going on. Festus doesn't even know what to write. He's going to send him to Rome, but he didn't even know what to tell them back at Rome about this guy Paul. And so Festus, who's not a Jew, looks to Agrippa and says, All right. You know the law better. Maybe that's what he said. He says, what do I do? He asks some advice and Agrippa says, I will listen to Paul's case. Yeah. Agrippa knows Judaism. Knows it very well. And so Paul here is going to appear before Agrippa. And as chapter 26 opens, Paul is before the authority of the Roman Empire over Judea. Bernice is there with him. Everybody knows what's going on there. Festus is there. Now catch this. Uh, from what I can tell, Paul is, is, is easily 20 years older than Agrippa II. 
It's very possible that Paul was even born before Agrippa's father. History says Agrippa I was born somewhere around 10 AD. And the history puts Paul born anywhere from 5 BC to 5 AD. It's very possible that Paul was even older than Agrippa's father. And here it is that Paul is going to address Agrippa in chapter 26 and verses 1 through 3. And he says, I am happy. Agrippa, I am happy to answer for myself. I am so happy today. I'm happy because he knows. He knows Agrippa knows the law. Paul is happy because he knows that Agrippa knows the customs of the Jews. Look at verse 1 of chapter 26. Agrippa said unto Paul, Thou art permitted to speak for thyself. Then Paul stretched forth his hand and answered for himself, I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because I shall answer for myself this day before thee, touching all the things whereof I am accused of the Jews, especially because I know thee to be expert in all customs and questions which are among the Jews. Wherefore, I beseech thee to hear me patiently. Agrippa, would just give me a little space and I'll explain it all to you. I'll let you know how this happened. And so Paul begins to defend himself, and he begins with his own background as a Jew. In verse 4 through 5, he says, I was born a Jew. I became a Pharisee. We know that. In verses 6 and six through 8, he says, I still believe in the resurrection, just like all of my brethren do, except, of course, the Sadducees. Look at verse 4. Would you, my manner of life from my youth, which is at the first among mine own nation at Jerusalem, known all the Jew, know all the Jews. Everybody knows who I was. Everybody knows how I was born. Everybody knows of my Jewish, Jewish lineage. Everybody knows as my, as my place as a Pharisee. They all know this. Verse 5. Which knew me from the beginning. If they would testify, if they would tell the truth, they would say this. Um, if they would, uh, would testify that after the most straightest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee, and now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made of God unto our fathers, which unto which promise our twelve tribes, instantly serving God day and night, hope to come. For which hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused of the Jews. Why should it be thought a thing incredible with you that God should raise the dead? Agrippa, you, you supposedly believe the law. You believe, you're a Jew. You believe this. Why should this be anything crazy for you to think about? Look at verse 9. I verily thought with myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus Christ. So Paul is proving himself here as a Pharisee. He is a Jew. He is not somebody coming from somewhere else and just stirring up a bunch of trouble. Look at verses 9 through 12. He, he, he moves to prove what kind of Pharisee he really was. Verse 9, I verily thought with myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth, which thing I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints did I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests, and when they were put to death, I gave my voice against them. Listen, he was not, him and the chief priests, the very ones that are trying to convict him here are the very ones that he was in cahoots with, that he was in agreement with. They were all on the same page at one time. And Paul said, I used to live this way, but something happened to me and I don't live this way anymore. So he goes into his conversion on that road to Damascus. Look at verse 13. Yeah. Here, I'll do it again. Look at verse 12. <laughs> Whereupon, as I went to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief 
priest, at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, above the brightness of the sun, shining round about me, and them which journeyed with me. And when, uh, when we were all fallen to earth, to the earth, I heard a voice speaking unto me and saying in the Hebrew tongue, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. We've talked about this before. We'll talk about it again real briefly here. When he says kicking against the pricks, those were goads. Those were long poles with sharp points on them. They were used to get the sheep to move where they wanted them to go. And what was, what was, what was Lord Jesus telling Paul? Paul, it's hard for you to kick against these things I'm poking you with. What was going on in Paul's life? Conviction of the Holy Spirit of God. Where did that conviction start? I believe with the preaching of Stephen when he sat there and watched him stoned. Look what he says here. And I said, Who art thou, Lord? It's always a smart thing to answer when the Lord speaks, isn't it? Who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. But rise... And stand upon thy feet. See, Paul thought he was going around persecuting those of that way. He thought he was going around persecuting the church. He thought he was going around persecuting a bunch of maniacs, a bunch of wild-eyed crazies, running off and doing a bunch of crazy stuff. And Jesus said, no, you are persecuting me. Me. Why? Because they are my body. Look what the Lord Jesus says, But rise and stand upon thy feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister and a witness both of these things which thou hast seen and of those things in which I will appear unto thee, future tense, delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles unto whom now I send thee, to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in that is in me. And this is the very exercise that we are taking place this morning. Amen. Trying to convince people to turn from darkness unto light, to turn from Satan and to turn unto God. This is what's going on here this morning. And this is what, what Paul was saying, what God had called him to in his life. And he gives King Agrippa here his, 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 uh, his testimony. And look what he says here in verse 19. Whereupon, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient unto the heavenly vision, but showed first unto them at Damascus and at Jerusalem and throughout all the coast of Judea and then into the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God and do works meet for repentance. For these causes the Jews caught me in the temple and went about to kill me. This is why, this is why I'm on trial. Because I met the Lord Jesus Christ. And I believed, I repented, and I obeyed. This is why I am on trial. We see here the Lord pursued Paul. And he's pursuing you today. The Lord stopped Paul. And this morning he may be stopping you today. And making you deal with what is going on. Paul came to a place of repentance. And the Lord gave Paul... A job to do. And you know what Paul did? He got up and did it. You know, you know, this is just the natural outcome of belief, isn't it? Obedience. <laughs> if I really believed it, I would really live it. Yeah. This, is, this is why the wor- world has no time for some of us. It's called hypocrisy. No, they're living what they believe. 
But many times we struggle believing what we believe. And we understand why. We could have a whole other message on the battle we have with the flesh. But I want you to hear what Paul told the Galatians in Galatians chapter 1. He said, But when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by His grace to reveal His Son in me that I might preach Him among the heathen, immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood. Paul Paul did not have a meeting. He did not pull pull together a conference of anybody. He did not ask anybody what they thought or what this means or what I should do. He got up and he did what God told him to do. And he said, Neither went I up to Jerusalem to them which were apostles before me. But I went to Arabia and returned again unto Damascus. You know why Paul did this? Because we have a personal God who deals with us on a personal level. And he's dealing with you this morning. So Paul told Agrippa, I was a Pharisee. I persecuted those of that way. Jesus came to me personally. I repented. I believed. I got up and I obeyed. And this is why the Jews want me dead? Seriously? This is it? Look at verse 21. For these causes the Jews caught me in the temple and went about to kill me. And verses 22 and 23 says, But I just carried on, look at this, having therefore obtained help of God, I continue unto this day, witnessing both to small and great, saying none other things than those which the prophets and Moses did say should come. I'm just preaching the Bible, he says. I'm just preaching the Word of God. This has all been prophesied. I'm doing nothing. It's not of anything of my own doings. Verse 23, that Christ should suffer and that He should be the first that should rise from the dead and should show light unto the people and to the Gentiles. And it was right here where Festus has had enough. And he said, much learning, Paul, has made you mad. You're nuts. You're crazy. And Paul says, I'm not mad, Festus. There's nothing wrong with me. And he turns and he goes, looks to Agrippa. And he says, Agrippa, look at this. In verse 26, For the king knoweth of these things, before whom I also speak freely. For I am persuaded that none of these things are hidden from him. He knows the law. He knows that there was a coming Messiah. They, must, they were mistaken, thinking the great-grandfather was the Messiah. That was a mistake. But they believed in a Messiah. He says, Agrippa, you know this. These things weren't done in the corner. Look at verse 27. King Agrippa, believest thou the prophets? I know. I know thou believest. Wow. So what does this mean if Agrippa does believe the prophets? Well, now he's got to deal with Jesus. (laughs) Obviously, Herod's gone. And still in the grave. Not a very good Messiah, is it? You believe the prophets, don't you? Prophecy. What about all the prophecy we have fulfilled today? What about all of the evidence that we have today? I like what somebody said one time. If uh, He said, I'm convinced if you, God gave us a thousand evidences, we'd ask for a thousand and one. We have plenty of evidence today. Would you, would, you, would you put in gear a little bit of logic? I know we have a great divorce from logic in our society today. But would you use just a little bit of logic? 1,600 year period of time for this book. 40 different writers. 
what, three to four different languages, no technology, different continents. And I will defy you, I will defy you to show me a contradiction. It's not possible, humanly speaking. What about prophecy? What about prophecy? 450 plus prophecies concerning Jesus, says Edersheim. Some count up to over 500. Prophecies concerning Jesus, concerning His birth in the Old Testament, concerning His birthplace, concerning the crucifixion. Yeah, All of the Old Testament prophets uh, uh, pointed to the coming Messiah. Isaiah predicted His birth 700 years before He came. The crucifixion was prophesied. 28 prophecies, some say, some up to 31 prophecies alone, fulfilled at the time of the crucifixion alone. There's one by, man by the, I believe, uh, mathematician, scientist, believe the last name was Stoner, said something to the point that the statistical chance of Jesus fulfilling just eight prophecies, just eight of them, was a chance of one in ten to the seventeenth power. Okay. Or the fifteenth power, or the tenth power. <laughs> it's still almost improbable. We're just talking about logic alone here, folks. If Agrippa believed the prophets, how could he reject Jesus? Yeah. So look what Agrippa says. Verse 28. Almost. Paul, you almost had me. So close. Why would he say almost? Because obviously there was conviction going on. Yeah. Nobody says, you almost had me on that one if they hadn't thought about it. If there wasn't something going on inside. Almost thou persuadest me to become a Christian. The gospel was preached. The Holy Spirit conviction was obviously present. And Agrippa had a choice to make here. And uh, he said, no. No. You know, we dealt with this last week, and as I was going through this message, I was heading in a totally different direction. And I was going to focus on Paul's testimony. It just was there in the text, obviously. Hopefully everything we focus on is in the text. And uh, this morning, just this morning, the Lord kind of led me in a, a different direction, but not a different direction. It seems like the same direction as last week. We dealt with it last week, and it looks like I'm going to deal with it again this week. Where were we last week? Well, what think ye of Christ? Is he the Son of God? Is he the Messiah prophesied in the Old Testament? Is he the seed of the woman promised in Genesis 3.15? Remember what Pilate said in Matthew 27. He said, Then what shall I do then with Jesus, which is called Christ? And they said, And don't let him be crucified. But I think we're left here in, in, our, in, in Acts chapter 26 with the words of Agrippa, Almost thou hast persuaded me to become a Christian. I've got to ask the question again this morning, what are you going to do with Jesus Christ? 
What will you do with him? Everybody is left with this question, are they not? Everybody is left with the decision to be made about Jesus Christ. And it's left up to you this morning as well. You know, this is why I have said the gospel never loses. You know why? Because when the preaching of the gospel is done, you are either going to have to say yes or no. In either way, the gospel accomplishes what it is intended to accomplish. You see, because preaching requires a response. Preaching requires a response. You know, the gospel can't lose because I think about what God said in Isaiah 55, 11. So shall my word be that goeth out forth of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereunto I sent it. God says, when my word goes out, it will accomplish exactly what I intend it to accomplish. Hebrews 4.12, we know the Bible says, For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing, I'm sorry, piercing even to the dividing asunder of a soul and spirit and of the joints of the marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. You ever had something going on in your mind? Some type of, uh, of, uh, of temptation going on in your mind? You're reading your Bible and man, there it is, deals with it. You're like, how'd that know that? Because it's a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And so when the Word of God is preached, it always accomplishes two things. It either accomplishes conviction unto repentance, or it, or it accomplishes conviction unto rejection. And every one of us in this room, and everyone who's ever lived, and Satan himself, will stand before the God of heaven one day, and give an account for their life. And you and I will give an account with what we did with Jesus Christ. What we did with the gospel. Everyone in this room will leave this morning either saying yes or saying no. No, Festus said no. Yeah. And Agrippa said no. But what are you saying this morning? What are you saying? You have to say something. You have to answer some way. No, let me say it again. What are you going to do with Jesus Christ? What will you do with Him? Felix had to decide. Paul had to decide. Festus had to decide. Agrippa had to decide. What are you going to decide? It could be here that you're in Christ today. You're born again and you know it. You remember the day that you came before the God of heaven and you confessed to Him that you knew who you were, that you were a sinner. And you knew that He was the only way to take care of it. And you, and you put your faith and trust in Him and you asked Him to save you and He did. You remember that day? Yeah. 
It could be the Holy Spirit of God is putting His finger upon something in your life today that you need to obey. You, you think it just stops at our salvation? Oh, that's the beginning. That is the beginning of the relationship. And He's continually trying to conform us to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And He may be putting His finger on something today and saying, oh, you know, you need to deal with that. I really don't want to have to work and tell you again, would you deal with that please? Would you take that out of your life? Would you stop that? Would you start that? Would you, would you do this? Would you not do it? If this finger's there, you know what it is. And you'll either say yes or no today. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never been born again of the Spirit of God. You don't know what that means. You don't understand that. You've never been saved. And this Holy Spirit of God has been drawing you. Maybe even this morning there is a heaviness upon you. There is something there that you can't shake. You know you know that you're a sinner. There's a heaviness in your heart. There's something pulling you towards Christ. And there's something that telling it is telling you you are in trouble with God. And this morning, you will either say yes or no. What will you do with Jesus Christ? What are you going to do? Not what your mother's going to do. Not what your father's going to do. Not what your grandparents are going to do. Not what your kids are going to do. What are you going to do with them? What are you going to do? 